Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you are here with me today. I am so sorry for being late this week. We had tonsil stones, a birthday party, and a meeting to learn the rules about cheerleader trouts, and I just couldn't get it all done on time. And I apologize to you guys. So last week, we began talking about Sarah Koshka, a 15-year-old girl who was abducted and murdered from an apartment complex in the affluent area of Southwest Fort Worth. I told you that she was the fourth woman to be abducted in a matter of just a few months, but she was the only person who had been found at the time. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off, but I'm going to circle back around to the beginning, just like I promised, and tell you about the first two women who went missing and also give you some more background on what had been happening in the area and what the police were trying to do about these disappearances. By 1985, this was the largest criminal investigation in the history of Fort Worth. The task force that had been created had grown to 45 officers, and they were working around the clock to try to solve the murders and abductions. Police Chief H.F. Hopkins vowed to the press that they would solve the murders, but they're still unsolved to this day. Several suspects were arrested, but were released after they were cleared. All of the cases are still considered active, and they are listed on the Fort Worth Police Department's cold case website. 23-year-old Catherine Davis moved from Oxford, Mississippi to Dallas right after she graduated from high school in 1979 to pursue a career in modeling. She was a tall, willowy brunette with striking green eyes. People remembered her eyes. The woman who worked at the 7-Eleven around the corner from where Catherine lived told police that she didn't know Catherine's name, but she would recognize her anywhere because of her unusual eyes. She was serious about her modeling career and was very into fashion. She liked to design her own clothes, which a lot of people described as odd, but friends said the clothes she designed were very cutting-edge fashion. She loved to go dancing, but she was very straight-laced. Friends said that she didn't drink, she didn't do drugs, she didn't even smoke cigarettes. When Catherine met her boyfriend in 1982, she left Dallas and moved to Fort Worth so that she could be closer to him. And not being in Dallas, her modeling career waned. She worked several jobs before she landed a job as an accounting clerk at Ridgely Country Club. The relationship with her boyfriend had fizzled by 1984, so she began making plans to move back to Dallas to get her modeling career back up and running. She told her landlady that she planned to move back to Dallas by Christmas of that year. Catherine lived alone in a garage apartment with her beloved cat about five blocks from the Texas Christian University campus. She was very artsy, and her landlady, Jerry Mosley, described her as whimsical. She said that Catherine would leave her little notes that she would sign either as cat or mew. Friends said that Catherine was different. They said she didn't think the same things as everyone else did. One friend even called her thoughts avant-garde. They all described her as very friendly, and they said that she would talk to anyone, but they also said that they thought Catherine was lonely. Friends said that she was hard to get to know, and that she didn't really let people get close to her. One of Catherine's friends said that they had very different views on housekeeping, and that was why Catherine lived by herself. Now, her landlady was much less diplomatic about Catherine's 
housekeeping skills, and she just flat out said that Catherine was messy. She said that Catherine was never able to cook for herself and that she frequently went to the 7-Eleven to buy hot chocolate for her dinner because her stove was so piled high with pots, pans, and fashion magazines that the thought of moving all that stuff to cook just didn't appeal to Catherine. I pictured Catherine as that artsy person who just doesn't worry about the day-to-day things because she's so caught up in her creative endeavors that magazines being piled on the stove was just kind of where they landed. Her neighbors said that they always knew when she was there because they could hear the music playing. Sometimes it was even so loud that her neighbors would complain. So Catherine loved rock music. And according to everyone, if she was home, that music was on, thumping and blaring. Something else was that she always did that as if she was there, the lights were on. Music was on, the lights were on. But when Catherine would leave, she always made sure to turn the music and her lights off so that at least if she wasn't there, she wasn't disturbing anybody. On the night of Friday, September 29th, 1984, around midnight, neighbors could hear Catherine arguing loudly with a man over the sound of her loud music. So that's a pretty loud argument. They've already said that her music can be heard thumping and bumping all the time and was sometimes so loud it disturbed her other neighbors. And here's the thing. Catherine lived in a garage apartment set behind a big Victorian home. So her music was loud because she wasn't in an apartment complex or even in a duplex or something attached to another home. She was in her own garage apartment set, I mean, on the same lot, but the Victorian home around around her was not attached to her home. And so that means it was neighbors and houses. So her music was loud. So for an argument to be heard over the music, that's a lot. Neighbors also said that that wasn't the norm for Catherine to have people over, let alone loud arguments. But they said the fight didn't last long. So when it was over, no one really thought anything else about it. A short time later, a man was seen speeding out of Catherine's driveway in her car a pale blue 1974 Dodge Dart. Again, odd, but maybe it was a new boyfriend. Maybe they'd had an argument. Maybe Catherine let him take the car. You know, she wasn't screaming and hollering, so the neighbors didn't think much else about it. And, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of one of those things. What are you going to do? Arguments happen. Now, also, the neighbors thought that she was safe inside her apartment. The music was going and the lights were on. But about 45 minutes after the man left, Catherine's cottage was completely engulfed by flames. Everything she owned was destroyed by the fire. And her cat that she loved so dearly was also lost in the fire. Investigators said that the fire was caused by a cigarette that was dropped onto the mattress in Catherine's bedroom. And at first they dismissed the fire as just plain carelessness. And I'm sure they did. They probably walked in and saw Catherine's apartment that it was a big old mess. And just thought, well, this was her. She dropped it. But remember, Catherine doesn't smoke. Catherine herself was nowhere to be found. All of her belongings were torched and her car was missing. 
all that was left was a small motorbike that she had, she always kept leaning up against a tree near her apartment. Now that same night, witnesses saw a man walking up to Catherine's door wearing gloves. That in itself was also odd because the temperatures were cool in the high 50s, but certainly not cold enough to wear gloves. So another odd thing. And of course, a loud argument, and then Catherine's car speeding away. Now, I don't understand why the police didn't think there was cause concern that first night, but they didn't. In fact, it was a whole week before anybody really started to worry. Catherine didn't show up for work. She didn't call her boss. No money was withdrawn from her bank account, and no one had had any contact with her. She was nowhere to be found. So that Friday after the fire, about a week later, her friends reported her as missing. Police at first thought Catherine had simply run off based off the reasoning that she had run away once before to Florida with a boyfriend. But in my opinion, that reasoning is just absurd. When she ran off to Florida, she was a teenager. She wasn't a woman living on her own who had suddenly dropped everything. I mean, think about it. Her home was torched. No one's seen her in a week since the fire. That's not the same thing as a teenager goofing off being rebellious. On October 7th, Catherine's car was found abandoned in the parking lot of the Westcliff Manor apartment complex, just a few blocks from her own garage apartment. And this is a pattern that you're going to see the more we talk about these murders and abductions. The killer likes apartment complexes. For one thing, you can sit in a parking lot and watch people come and go. You can learn their routines. You can see when the apartment's most busy. You can see when it's most secluded. You can learn a lot just sitting there and observing. Another thing is that in the 1980s, apartment complexes were much more accessible than they are today. Very few of them were had gated access codes like they do now. So it was very easy to slip in and out undetected. And it was also an easy place to just dump a vehicle. She pulled over and asked the woman, Kazumi Gillespie, and I hope I'm pronouncing Kazumi correctly, if she needed any help. Kazumi said that her car had stalled out and that no matter what she did, she could not get it to start. So Cindy offered to give her a ride over to the Bennigan's restaurant near the Hewlin Mall that was right close by. She told Kazumi that there was a payphone in the restaurant and she could use it to call for a ride. Kazumi called home, but no one was there. So Cindy offered to wait with her at the bar until someone came to pick her up. The two women sat at the bar, had a few drinks, and visited for about two hours. Around 11.30, Kazumi's friends still had not made it home and Cindy was tired. She told Kazumi that she was going to call it a night and offered to go by the Hunter Ridge apartment complex and leave a note so that her friends would know where to come pick her up. The two women exchanged phone numbers and Cindy left the restaurant. Later on that night, Kazumi called Cindy's house to check on her and make sure that she had made it home safely. Cindy's boyfriend, Nathan Gaspard, told her that Cindy was still not at home. Kazumi ended up calling two more times that night to check on Cindy and both times, Nathan told her Cindy had still not made it back. Now, Nathan caught, started trying to call police as soon as he talked to Kazumi. 
and report Cindy missing. But you know how that goes. The police said that it was too soon for him to file a report. And it took until the next morning for them to finally let him file that missing persons report. Kazumi's friends told police that they found the note that Cindy left on the apartment door when they arrived home sometime after midnight, but they did not see Cindy. Here we go. Again, another apartment complex. Like I said, you're going to notice that this is a pattern for our killer. And um, something else, if Cindy left the apartment complex, not the apartment complex. I'm sorry. Let me back that up. If Cindy left the Bennigan's restaurant at 1130, the roommates returned sometime after midnight. She hadn't been gone that long. That meant whoever it was probably already had her in their sights or were at least sitting in that apartment complex looking for whoever their, their next victim might be. So Cindy's boyfriend drove to the Hunter Ridge apartment complex to see if he could find any trace of what might have happened to Cindy. Her red Plymouth Velare was parked in the parking lot. It was locked and the inside of her car had been set on fire. There was blood on the driver's side door handle. Does that sound familiar? The police said that they thought the fire was started by some receipts that had been set on fire from the heat of the sun after they'd sat in the car for too long. I'm sorry, y'all. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. My car would have been reduced to ash by now if it was that easy for a receipt left in the car to catch on fire. The other reason that it's just a dumb theory, and I'm sorry I said it, dumb theory, is because it was overcast and in the low 60s that day. The car hadn't even sat in the parking lot for 24 hours yet. I, I don't get it. And I will say this. When I say it's a dumb theory, I think it's a dumb theory, but I am pro-law enforcement, so it's not like I'm making fun of them. And they were obviously working hard. I just think that at that point, they didn't know what to think, and they were grasping. Cindy Heller had moved from Glencoe, Illinois in 1979 to attend Texas Christian University. She graduated in 1983 with a degree in fashion merchandising. Her friends and family described her as friendly and outgoing. They said she was vivacious and that she never met a stranger and that she was always willing to help anyone. One friend even said that because of this generous outgoing nature, it's probably what ended up getting Cindy killed, which is so sad because she went on to say that the world needed more people like Cindy because with more people like her in it, it'd probably be, be a better place. Like all the other women, Cindy was beautiful. She was about five foot four. She had long golden brown hair and big brown eyes. She was a beauty pageant contestant and she loved to sing and dance. Her friends, family, people who just knew her in interviews said that you couldn't help but be drawn to her. Not, And it wasn't like she was seeking it out. It was just her open personality. People felt comfortable with her. She was the business manager for her boyfriend's landscape architect company. And they had recently started talking about getting married. And she also taught aerobics classes. She was someone who, like all the other women, had a lot going for her. She wasn't just slobbing it around. All these women were young and had lots of ambition and wanted to do something with themselves. Cindy was from a very wealthy family in Illinois. And just like Catherine's family, they immediately came to Texas and 
helped search. They offered a $5,000 reward for any information that helped find her. But just like Catherine, no one had seen anything. It was like she had vanished. And it would be months before either of the women would be found. On January 15th, 1985, two children were playing near a creek on the Texas Christian University campus. They saw something floating in the weeds on the bank of the creek, and when they went over to see what it was, they quickly got, I'm sure, a very traumatizing sight. They ran home and told their parents that there was a body floating in the creek. Cindy Heller's headless, nude body was in the creek. Police believed that Cindy's body had been dumped in a storm sewer further upstream and that it had traveled down the creek and ended up staying there. Her body was badly decomposed and it took four days for them to make a positive ID. Now, investigators believe that she was strangled, but I'm not quite sure how they determined that because it said she was headless. And they did not believe that she had been dismembered by her killer. They thought that exposure and being in the water had caused Cindy's body to break apart. So like I said, I'm not real sure how they came to the conclusion that she had been strangled because it said she was badly decomposed and the water had done a lot of damage to her. Everyone on campus was stunned. There were many people on campus that still knew Cindy. A memorial service was held for her, and the male students started an escort service on campus so that women would not have to walk alone at night. Sales of mace, guns, knives skyrocketed. Women started staying at home at night. Many police reports and news reports said that women just said they weren't leaving their houses at night anymore. They were scared, and with good reason. The creek where Cindy's body was found was an eyesight of Catherine Davis's garage apartment. So think about that for a little bit. A few weeks later, Catherine Davis's remains were found in a field in heavy underbrush by some surveyors on January 23rd, 1985. By then, her remains had been scattered across a 75-foot area on both sides of a small creek out in the field. Investigators collected 45 small bags of bones and some remnants of Catherine's clothing that were left. Now, it, it wasn't found, her remains weren't found until late in that evening. And to make sure that no one tampered with the evidence, police guarded that field all night so that they could come back the next day and make sure that what was left was not tampered with. The medical examiner was able to identify Catherine's body based on dental records, but because her body had been so scattered and it was down to bones, they were not able to determine a cause of death. But her remains were found just six miles from her apartment. So she had been close by that whole time. By the time Catherine and Cindy's bodies had been found, two more women, Angela Ewert and Sarah Koshka, had also gone missing. Remember, Sarah was the first to have been found, but Angela still had not, and it would be years before Angela's body was located. Even though police had been working diligently, they were no closer 
to finding out who was responsible for these women's murders. And to this day, they're not any closer. I know I've said that before, but it's just so sad to me. And there, after this, there's still one more woman that we're going to talk about. So hopefully one day they will get some answers. If anybody listens and they hear something that sparks a memory, let the Fort Worth Crime Stoppers know. You never know. Your one little tip might be the thing that turns the tide in an investigation and gives a lot of families some answers and some closure. Thank you for listening today. I would love to hear what you think or if you have any thoughts about this episode. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can always email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and of course, tell a friend if you like what you hear. And I know I always say leave a five-star review, but the thing is, is the better the reviews are, then the higher they get up when people search for a podcast. So if you leave me that review, it pops the podcast up a little bit higher so that people find the podcast easier. So anyway, I appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see everyone next week. Hopefully there'll be no more tonsil stones or anything else and I will be right on track. No, seriously, I will be on track. Anyway, everyone have a good week. Bye.